Smart Council is a production of New Pattern Counseling, with additional support from Multnomah University. To learn how to support this podcast, visit patreon.com slash smartcouncil. Reese Basimio is a counselor, teacher, and writer, and the founder of New Pattern Counseling in Gresham, Oregon. His clinical specialties are addictions, gender, sexuality, and spirituality. Thanks for listening. Welcome to another episode of Smart Council. This episode is one of a series of lectures that I delivered in a class setting. The class was an introduction to addictions, and the context was a master's in counseling program at a Protestant university. Given this context, the episodes are longer, live, and a bit more organic than normal. You may hear gaps in conversation. Otherwise, uh, this is me having the most fun public speaking that I can imagine. Uh, So thanks again for listening, and let's keep the conversation going. All right, here we are, back for Addiction Interaction Part 2. So jumping in where we left off, uh, this is assuming you've watched Part 1, there will be spoilers. We were talking a lot about the addiction cycle. Important to remember the compulsive aspect of a cycle. Uh, so, so again, um, uh, I've been using a bit of this term uh, compulsion um, when we're talking about addiction. And we're talking about ad- addiction, obsession, compulsion. Uh, we could also talk about the urge for satiation that goes in there. So what is a compulsion? Uh, one way it's been described, it's uh, that sense of being driven to do something even though uh, you know, the person, kn- that sense of being driven to do something, even though you know you will regret it, the feeling of being high or altered or temporarily relieved when engaged in the behavior, and that the experience of you have, you have painful withdrawal when trying to control the behavior. So now, now at that point, now have I described um, addiction or have I described obsessive compulsive disorder or obsessive compulsive adaptation, as it is sometimes also called? Um, you know, in, in both cases, there, there, there's this neurological mechanism that says, um, I feel obsessed with this thing, and I feel anxiety when I don't do it, in the sense that by doing it will relieve the anxiety, and it maybe will for a little bit, but then there's going to be either consequences from it, or withdrawals because I stopped doing it, and a desire to do it again, but then there's consequences for it, but I, but I keep having to do it, even though I don't really want to do it. Um, and at that point, again, I could be talking about like, like drinking, like smoking, like masturbating, or like checking the doorknobs or washing the hands. Um, or uh, there's also this component of, you know, in both cases, there's the spiraling thoughts, these uh, intrusive, very powerful thought spirals that, that come up. And it could either be I'm having like craving and obsession for, for this thing that I'm doing, or I'm just having to grapple with these uh, these really negative dark thoughts and I'm obsessed with them and um and so there there are is a lot of overlap between what we understand to be ocd and then what we also understand to be you know substance use disorders and and addictive behaviors and probably that that compulsive aspect is really important to pay attention to um you know it's uh, again from from within the christian tradition there's a passage in the New Testament book of Romans, chapter 7, where St. Paul, he's talking in very poignant terms about, I, I do the things that I don't want to do, and I want to do the things that I don't do. A wretched man that I am, who will save me from this body of death? 
and there's a sense of being trapped in it and that's that that's a compulsion and so for that reason uh, i have started to prefer the term compulsion to addiction in many cases i feel like it more specifically more accurately describes what we're talking about and it um it carries i mean all of these terms have stigma it carries a different stigma uh it's maybe still in our collective memory just to think ooh, addict dangerous criminal um which there's a lot of race racist components to that anyway um it's a little different thinking like you know ooh, compulsive person like there's like a, a little different set of things that we think of there and it might be healthy to, to bring more of that in. So all that to say, um, I find it helpful to consider addictions to be um, a form of compulsion with a high obsessive component, a high preoccupation component. Remember in that addictive cycle, there, there's a phase of preoccupation, obsession leading to ritualization. There's the, that, that obsessive component. It's, it's part of the relationship. It's high drama. Well, okay, so we talked a little bit about this, acting in versus sobriety. It's, it's talking about like a healthier relationship with a healthy thing compared to like a, a manageable relationship with a risky thing. And okay, that's all we'll say there. Talked about this. Um, so differential diagnoses are important to consider, which we'll talk about more of this more when we're talking about uh, like diagnoses. But, but what we want to notice here is that things will tend to interact. For example, a person presents in classic mania. Uh, is it mania from bipolar or are they under the influence of methamphetamines? Sometimes they will mimic each other. Or, you know, is the person depressed or are they under the influence of alcohol long term? There can be some similarities. Or at least in that case, you'd want to, you know, get them sober first and then rule, rule that out um, to see, you know, because as long as a person has chemicals in their body, you can't be sure that they're mental illness is not a result of the chemicals. Was it a double, triple negative? Yeah. You got to get the chemicals out first. Kind of similar, uh, like, you know, anxiety when using stimulants. (laughs) I I did an intake for this one person once who, you know, she was like talking about, yeah, I'm I'm just like really anxious all the time. And um, like, no, I mean, I drink a little bit and but, but I, I can't tell what, what, what's, what's causing the anxiety. And somewhere it came out, they're like, oh, yeah, and I use cocaine. I'm like, how often do you use cocaine? She's like, a couple times a week. And I'm like, oh, well, <laughs> that might be why you're anxious. Maybe, possibly, even just on the chemical level. Anyway, uh, yeah, stimulants are going to raise the anxiety. Depressants are going to contribute to depression. Uh, you know, when we look at somebody who's in a bipolar cycle, you know, is it really bipolar disorder or are they on a long cycle of trauma reenactment? compulsive trauma reenactment um, and especially if those um, bipolar those manic episodes are involving uh, like acting out sexually is that hypersexuality is that mania or is it that I have some deep relationship wounds that get triggered and then when they get triggered I start to reenact them as part of that trauma reaction that's that's a thing uh, and again like um, ADHD and the obsessive ADHD and OCD, they're, they're an attachment disorder. I mean, they, they all have some features there. Uh, you know, somebody's having psychosis. Do they have schizophrenia proper? Or again, have they just had too many amphetamines? These are things to consider in the way that uh, all of the things interact with each other. Uh, okay, addiction interaction has once in old days been called intemperance. So the addictive neural pathways, uh, or what is the addiction doing for you? Uh, so again, We've been talking a lot about the cycle. The, the person is caught in the cycle. Something is driving the cycle. 
um, looking at neural pathways is starting to look at that cycle. So here's a picture. So this is a slide from the ITAP world. Uh, give them full credit for it. Um, the black hole of addiction interaction. So here in the center circle, you're going to see um, the, the, main, the main neural pathways. So there's the arousal pleasure pathway, red up on top, numbing satiation, blue on the one side, uh, green deprivation on the bottom, uh, dissociation, fantasy escape, purple on the left. So the idea with the neural pathways is that, um, again, you have these neurological connections in your brain, uh, nerve cells connecting to each other for each experience. Um, the idea is that addiction accomplishes different things for different people and different people crave different things for different reasons. Uh, you know, so you're going to have some people who are drawn to their uppers. They're going to be drawn to the arousal, the pleasure, the excitatory, the adrenaline-packed activities. And you're going to have some people that are drawn to the downers, to like the alcohol, the food, the, the heroin, the, the soothing, calming activities. And you're going to have some people drawn to more of the the dissociation, fantasy escape sorts of things. So maybe, maybe the, the cannabis, the, the mushrooms, the porn, the, the gaming, the things that um, activate the fantasy, get you out of yourself. And then you're going to have, you know, people who, you know, drawn to like the deprivation states and that's, you know, looking for a sense of control. So you're going to have things like, um, like, like sexual anorexia, like food anorexia, like like self-harm and, uh, you know, traumatic bonding. Uh, the idea is that, uh, and if again, if again the the acting out behavior is in response to uh, uh, something, in response to a wound or a response to a need, we've all been wounded in different ways within some categories, and thus we're going to be drawn to different things. So I find that. So for myself, I tend to be anxious already. I tend toward anxiety. So high adrenaline activities are not really comfortable for me. I don't like being scared. I don't like being super thrilled. I don't like, uh, I don't like jumpiness. Um, I do like alcohol. I do like TV. I do like sex. I do like those soothing, more downer, comforting sorts of things. Because I mean, for me, I'm, I'm kind of an anxious person that way. Um, you know, that, 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 that's my example. I'm sure you could you know, put together your own. Uh, with this particular graphic, so this one also depicts uh, four major categories of acting out behaviors. So they're going to have um, your substances, alcohol, cocaine, amphetamines, tobacco, depressants, etc. You're going to have uh, your process appetites, food, sex, and love, work, money, exercise, uh, core affect states, so certain emotions themselves are addictive. Here they have listed despair, intensity and risk, self-loathing, shame, misery, rage, uh, and you're going to have a relationship corner. So you have codependency, maybe a co-sex addiction, traumatic bonding, love addiction, relationship addiction, uh, the romance and limerence, uh, where you're just like infatuated with the feelings. Um, and again, different things are going to tap into the different the different pathways. Um, and, and the way they depict this one is it's, um, you know, there's, there, there's some overlap. So some of the substances are going to do more than one thing. Um, like in this one, you might say, um, like alcohol, it could have this sort of dissociative, disconnective aspect, and it could have a numbing aspect. Uh, something like sex. I mean, I mean, kind of the combination of sex and porn, like, like sex itself, it can be, I mean, there's an arousing component to it, but it's also kind of numbing, kind of satiating, kind of soothing in that way. 
uh, a little bit different than, than porn, which is going to be, again, arousing, but also more dissociative. So, uh, and again, we can say, okay, so if you're seeking that arousal and the dissociation, are you tending to then be kind of like depressed and in pain in your own self and want to like become more excited and get out of yourself? You know, we could draw, we could, we can draw some inferences that way and say, okay, based on the things you're seeking, that's suggesting a particular kind of wound on the other end that you're responding to. Neuropathways represent the tasks that the addiction is accomplishing. And again, it does not matter as much what the person uses to accomplish the task so long as it is accomplished. And again, we, were, we would be looking for what is the core task that they're trying to accomplish. And it's the combination of experiences that the person uses to utilize the addictive neuropathway that is the addiction interaction. So. After all of that, now we finally answer the question, what is addiction interaction? Addiction interaction is that combination of experiences that you're using to get to your particular neuropathway, like your one or two main neuropathways. And again, more, more on this. So there's your arousal or excitatory pathway. It's your, your uppers and your stimulants, your depressing and numbing uh, pathway, the, the seeking not to feel, to feel less, to calm down, your downers. Fantasy escape dissociation, seeking escape or alteration of perceived reality. Uh, your deprivation pathway, seeking control, uh, you've got your anorexia, your binge purge, your self-harm, self-sexual aversion, deprivation from sex, food, pleasure, basic needs. Uh, it's interesting when you factor in money and work too, like our different narratives around that. Like if you, uh, it's interesting like what people spend their money on, like do they spend money, do they, do they spend money to take care of their basic needs and like buy things like new clothes and new toothbrushes and like healthy food? Or do they like kind of penny pinch uh, and never spend money on anything? Or do they like overspend and say, I'm going to like overindulge in like all of the things that I want to have? Um, money, money, sex, and food, they're, they, they, have a lot, they have a lot of uh, interaction with each other and a lot of implications for each other. So here's, a, here, here's the fun bit we want to talk about for uh, addiction interaction. It's actually the manners of interacting. So how do, how do things, how do, how, how do these drugs all play together? Uh, okay, so cross tolerance, and we're gonna. There's just like a list of different ways that we're gonna go through. So cross tolerance is a very common one, and this is a simultaneous increase in addictive behavior in two or more addiction, two or more addictions. So a transfer of a high level of addictive activity with little or no developmental sequence. So with cross tolerance, the idea is that uh, if I've developed tolerance to to one one activity, say I've developed a high tolerance to alcohol. Um, probably if I then pick up cocaine, I will already have a high tolerance and have, and have a high starting threshold there or like alcohol, cannabis, cocaine, meth, et cetera, et cetera. So, so yeah, building tolerance in one builds tolerance in the other. And thus, um, so referencing there, there was a question last lecture, you know, is it possible to get addicted to heroin after one hit? Or is it possible to develop uh, tolerance to, or an addiction to you know, crystal meth after you know, one, one or two uses? Uh, here's where we might say um, when, that it, when that occurs, it might be a, a cross-tolerance phenomenon. You have already built a high tolerance by using other things, other substances and other behaviors. Uh, and so then when you finally do get to crystal meth, um, you have a high tolerance for it and, and it just it falls into that uh, spot um, that, it, that becomes the object of your obsession very, very easily. So, and, uh, and the, other, the other phenomenon to watch for is where substances and behaviors interact. So maybe if I've, if I've already developed a high tolerance for, for porn, say, 
um, and defined by I'm needing like you know edgier, more riskier, more violent content. Um, I'm uh, I'm I'm driving my my dopamine baseline like way up high. So if I then decide I'm going to try a drug, I'm going to already be needing a lot of that to to get to that same high, and I already have a high tolerance for that because I'm just my my brain has been reset in that way. So that's cross tolerance. Withdrawal mediation is where one addiction serves to moderate, relieve, or avoid withdrawal from another. Um, this is why everyone in recovery ought to quit smoking and coffee. Um, when you so when you quit a when you quit a behavior, you're gonna have a withdrawal from it. Again, your brain is um, no longer in homeostasis and is seeking seeking normalcy, and so um, so you have withdrawals. Um, your body is no longer without its coping mechanism. And some people will use other other drugs. To, to, to mediate that. This is where uh, medication-assisted therapy uh, happens. So things like methadone, things like suboxone, things like naltrexone, those are, that's part of what those are doing is they're helping you get through the withdrawals uh, so that you don't use other things to, to get through them. It'd be like you're, you're, you're dependent on alcohol uh, and so you, you drink more just to avoid the withdrawals or um, or like, you I mean, you've been addicted to, to like these, you know, harder drugs. And so now you've quit, you're, you're chain smoking and drinking coffee all day as an attempt for, for anything to, to get you through the withdrawals or to give yourself some comfort there. The, and the challenge there is that you're still in the cycle a little bit. Um, what, what, what ultimately needs to happen is you need to get all the way through the withdrawals. Sometimes that just means cutting everything off and being miserable for a bit. Uh, and again, the level at which you are acting out and the severity of the withdrawals is going to be different for different people. And where, where it gets more severe is where you'll need more structured interventions. Like you need a detox, you need medical monitoring, you need to utilize like an inpatient or an intensive program. Some withdrawals are not so dangerous. Like like the, the, the theory is that like nobody's ever died from like opiate addiction because it just, you feel miserable, but then you get over it. Or like you know, withdrawal from amphetamines, you just sleep for three days and then you, your body's like kind of fine. Um, with like alcohol or like barbiturates and benzodiazepines, um, the way that those work, there can actually be some fatal complications attached to withdrawals. And so that's where in some circumstances, well, you know, you'll tell people who have been drinking alcohol at levels that are high enough, will actually say, don't stop drinking until you can get to uh, a treatment center. Or if you are going to try and titrate, you know, if you start feeling like the really intense withdrawal symptoms, like have a drink to keep yourself alive because just the, there's some chemical things that go in there. Well, 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 when we're quitting one thing and having withdrawals, we'll tend to reach for another to lessen the withdrawals and thus kind of keep the cycle going. Uh, replacement is another manner of interaction. Here's where one addiction replaces another with a majority of emotional and behavioral features. So here's where, again, recognizing how, how it shows up in the cycle. You know, if say, say first I'm acting out with sex and I'm, uh, maybe I'm, I'm looking at porn and masturbating, I'm having hookups, I'm doing, um, having affairs, doing, doing, doing that, that, whole, that whole shebang, um, very obsessively, very compulsively, very ritualistically. Um, and then maybe I, I stop all that and maybe then I'll, I'll pick up food. And actually like sex and food, that's a very common combination to, to watch for. Um, I start, I, I may be acting out sexually and like uh, depriving myself of food and then kind of an anorexic cycle. Um, but then when I switch, I'll be sexually, uh, sexually anorexic and acting out with food. And there will be a different set of rituals, a different set of compulsions, different set of preoccupations related to like 
overeating and acting out with, with binging and, and things like that. Um, and, and this could go, I mean, it could go this way with, with, um, with chemicals also. Um, and I know I have one fellow who, uh, he kind of goes back and forth between like alcohol and cannabis and, you know, either way, when, when, when he uses, he'll tend to like overuse either one, but only one at a time, but like, but both in kind of the same way for the same reasons. Or the other scenario I have here is you, maybe you're acting out with, with alcohol, uh, like the classic, you know, alcoholic, I don't really like that term, but you know, uh, you're acting with alcohol, you quit the alcohol, and uh, then you become like, like a rageaholic, sexaholic, and you're acting out in that way. Then you kind of work through those, but now you're ex- obsessively, you know, working and exercising again with that compulsive ritualistic, you know, bent to it. Uh, you know, all that to say is like, you can't just be still with yourself. Uh, and so you tend to replace one thing with another. So again, why do we bring this up? You know, when you're working with people looking for cycles, looking for patterns, you want to watch for this. You want to say, okay, I've quit the conventionally bad things, but am I now abusing a good thing or abusing a neutral thing? You want to pay attention to that. Alternating addiction cycles, kind of, kind of a, a variation of that. Um, it's a, it's an addiction cycle back and forth in a, in a patterned and systemic way. And we'd mentioned like acting out and acting in. Um, like I'll do the more explosive, conventionally dangerous things, and then I'll switch to the more internalized, um, sometimes socially acceptable things. And again, we mentioned a cycle. You know, you're acting out sexually, and then um, yeah, you, then you start acting out with, with food. Or what happens sometimes is somebody who will be acting out with drugs and alcohol and, you know, criminal activity and everything, they'll get clean and then they'll become addicted to recovery, essentially. And they'll be like, I am Lord of the 12 Steps and I am the sobriety police and I am the dry drunk and I'm kind of cantankerous and grumpy, but I'm but I'm clean and that's all that matters. And the, the focus has shifted. Or another variation, you know, they're acting out with drugs and alcohol, uh, but then they stop that and then they pick up uh, maybe like hypersexual behaviors, uh, as well as you know now I now I'm addicted to now I'm like the fitness guru and the nutrition guru and that's just like all I'm about. Which again, those are, those are good things. I mean, it's good to be invested in fitness and, and nutrition. But but again, if your relationship to those things is is compulsive, then it's not really healthy. And if it's I have relationships with these activities instead of people, or instead of a relationship with my own self or with my own higher power then we could say, yeah, you're just obsessing over something different and it's socially acceptable. Masking is where an addicted person uses one addiction to cover up for another, um, perhaps more substance, substantive addiction. Here's where uh, we might think um, caffeine and nicotine or like gaming and shows for porn. And again, the, the idea is that there's, there's maybe a, a central addiction, but, um, but when you're trying to, trying to quit it, or in a period of abstinence, you'll use a you'll use a lesser mechanism that like covers up the effects of it, um, or kind of kind of lessens the effects. That, so that that that's masking. Ritualizing. I think the the addictive behavior of one addiction serves as a ritual pattern to another, uh, and so the, this becomes especially important as we're considering how they all interact because you might use one to get to another. Um, such in the case of like, like where porn and masturbation happen, like you'll go through like your ritual to, you know, start up the porn, get involved in that. Um, you'll, and then that, that the whole point of that is, is, is the climax. And so you, the porn becomes a vehicle to, to the climax or, um, sometimes, you know, for people who are like trying to quit, like, you know, alcohol and weed together, like alcohol and sex could be one, like I might not engage in sexual acting out 
until I am also intoxicated. And so the, the process of beginning to act out sexually will involve also acting out with, with alcohol, with drinking too much. Um, meth and sex, there, there, there's, a, there's a lot of ritual that goes into there. Like, um, I mean, not um, in, in order to, to do, do the kind of sex that, that I want to have, like I, I need this meth. And uh, actually, um, I worked with one fellow who he was very, very aware of his ritual. And he had pinpointed, like, in order to, in order to have his I- ideal acting out experience, there were like six different components that all needed to be met. Like it needed to be this, it needed to be that, there needed to be this drug, it needed to be anonymous, it needed to be, you know, a very particular set of things because the ritual was really important. And again, the, it's important to consider the, the ritual in that there's, there's a function to what you're doing. Um, and, you know, once you find out like what it takes to get to that function, then that, that, that's what you do. So, um, but, and again, and again, what, what we would look for, you know, clinically, clinically is we'd look for, you know, it's, you know, it's not just, you know, it's not just cannabis that, that you're trying to quit. It's what are all of the things that lead to that? Is it, um, is it, is part of your cannabis ritual, you know, um, a game you play, a show you watch, um, a food you eat, a, a partner you have sex with. And, you know, it's not just, you know, alcohol, but it's, you know, I go to this particular bar, I get this particular drink, I smoke this particular kind of cigar, uh, et cetera, et cetera. You know, and if there, if there's a ritual to, to a relationship or to a hookup, I mean, there's, that just gets much more elaborate. It's like, I go to this particular site or I go to this particular place, and then we do these particular drugs, and then we do this particular, particular act. And, um, you know, and there's maybe some room for like the uh, ritual developing, but, but, but the idea is that it's not just the thing, but there's a lot of other things that lead up to it, and all of those need some attention. Uh, fusion, fusion's a really, really interesting one, and there's a couple, a couple levels of levels of this. So, fusion is. Um, oh, there's a slide coming up where um, I talk about like combining, and the idea is that I'm, I'm mixing things to get a bigger bang. I'm, um, I, I do a couple things together because then the, the impact is more. Level level one of this would be with binge features. So it's the episodic multiple use, uh, yet these things are functionally independent of one another. So we might have the example of like the wild party nights. So maybe a person will sometimes, you know, binge on alcohol, sometimes they'll use cocaine, sometimes they'll, uh, sometimes they'll have a hookup or something. Uh, every now and then they all happen together, but they, and, and then the experience is just tremendous. Um, but they don't always happen together, and they don't really need each other for that. It's just uh, every now and then I have them all together, and it's very, very intense. Um, partial fusion would be a combination of addictions in such a fashion as to be more potent than each addiction is separately. And the addictions are used independently part of the time. Uh, so again, thinking about kind of our party scenario where you know a person will sometimes use cocaine and sometimes will use sex, uh, and sometimes we'll do them together. And when they happen together, there's a, there's a stronger stronger experience, and and maybe that's maybe that's something that they they seek out a lot of the time. But they can still get high on cocaine on its own. They can still um, get you know high on sex you know on, on their own. Um, but part of the time, they they use them together. Um, and the, and there's many combinations for that, um, like. I mean, people who will mix, like, you know, downers, mix, you know, alcohol and pills, which is very dangerous. Don't do that. You'll overdose and die. Um, but, you know, but if you're wanting, like, that increased effect, you, you might do that. Or, you know, people, you know, you might, you know, not only, you know, sometimes they'll use porn, sometimes they'll, you'll smoke weed, but a lot of times you do them together because the effect is just, like, that much more intense. Um, 
et cetera, et cetera. Uh, full fusion is where neither addiction separately is sufficient and only simultaneous use is only simultaneous use is sufficient. So one of the biggest examples to consider here is chemsex. Uh, this is in particular sex with meth, methamphetamines. Um, you know, it's you know anyone anyone can do this. It is conspicuously present among uh, men who have sex with men. It is just part of the culture. Crystal meth and and um, and men who have sex with men. What you'll run into sometimes is is people who have never had sex without drugs, or they just they don't do drugs without sex either. Um, and because the two have only ever happened together, they are now fused. They they belong to each other. They inform each other and. Neurologically, the person doesn't have a box or a method or any experience with having one on their own. Uh, and so what, what can be tricky here is, A, you can't just pick up one without the other so they, because they're just like, that's hide. Uh, then the other tricky thing is a person, say, gets you know sober from, from chemsex, wants to remain sober from the drugs, uh, but wants to resume sexual activity. Their body doesn't know how to respond. They, they, they don't know how to become aroused to a sober person as a sober person. And so you run into like erectile dysfunction or other other sexual performance problems or just like, or even before that, the, the relationship problems of like, how do I meet people without drugs? And so uh, recovery from, from chemsex, it's, uh, it takes a lot of work and it's very tricky and takes a lot of supports. Um, and, and again, the, the idea that it's important to remember here is it's not a person with a drug problem, nor is it a person with a, a sex problem. Um, you can have people with just drug problems and you can have people with just sex problems. Um, the, the fusion experience is where you have a person who has both a drug problem and a sex problem and the two are problems for each other and both of them need to be addressed. If you don't address both, you're not really addressing either. Uh, so, and again, going back to that question of, do I have to quit everything? Do I have to quit everything all at once? In some cases, you do have to quit everything all at once. Because again, if you don't quit everything, you're not quitting anything. That's not every situation, but some of the, some of the more uh, involved situations are like that. Numbing is another manner of interaction uh, where addiction is used to medicate shame or pain caused by other addiction or addictive binging. You know, examples like I might rage, act out in anger, and then I'll numb out with like shows and screens and porn, or I'll act, act, I'll act out with alcohol, I'll like I drink too much, do something shameful and embarrassing, and then maybe use, you know, porn masturbation to, to self-soothe, or even just masturbation. You know, maybe a person will go through a period of like, they go in their weekend binge, they act out with substances, but then they come back from the weekend and they throw themselves into work or into spiritual activity um, to, to compensate. Uh, and that, that can create this very dissociative aspect to a person where they have their, their, their weekend life or their nightlife and then their, their daytime self and they're vastly different, vastly different people. And you know, your daytime self feels a lot of shame over what they do in the nights, but, but they, they, they don't actually break out of the cycle or like really address the shame. Again, there's no, the shame doesn't convert to changing action or the shame doesn't convert to action that makes change. It just converts, it just becomes a way to say, I'm gonna act out, I'm gonna act in and, and ignore and numb in, in some way. Uh, disinhibiting is where you have one addiction that it's used to lower the inhibitions for other addictions and or other acting out. Uh, and it's basically you only do one action when other action is also happening. 
so this would be, so for example, um, like you, you get stoned before you have a hookup um, or a certain kind of hookup. And maybe, maybe you've never had, again, maybe you've never had sober sex. You know, you might use cocaine before acting out sexually, or you might um, use alcohol before acting out with cocaine or with meth or something. Um, this one would be maybe a little bit more intentional where it's like, I want to get to B, but I have to do A first. Uh, so, so, they, so they become connected in that sort of way. Uh, combining, it's like fusion. We talked about that. Um, so uh, the inclusive interaction, th this is a really interesting one. And this is where you have one addiction that absorbs all of the others. And um, probably a very, a very common one here would, would be sex. From outside, it might look like, hey, this person, like, sometimes they they get drunk, sometimes they get stoned, sometimes they get high, sometimes they do these compulsive gambling binges, sometimes they have these rage episodes, sometimes they're really depressed, like, sometimes they, they look manic. Um, they're just, like, so much chaos. Like, what's going on? Maybe they, they have borderline personality disorder because they're just, like, all over the place. Maybe they have bipolar. What, what's going on all over the place? Uh, and I might say, well, y you missed something. It's because they, they have a sex addiction. And... You know, sometimes they have sex with alcohol, sometimes they have sex with weed, sometimes they have sex with cocaine, sometimes they have sex that is connected to gambling, sometimes they have sex and rage together, um, you know, sometimes, you know, there's spending that goes with it, and there's a lot of despair that can go with that. Uh, and, and so what you have there is an example where you have a central addiction that incorporates a bunch of other things in different, in some intermittent order. Uh, and again, uh, you can try and go for any of the limbs, any of Hydra's heads, um, but the main body is still in there. The, the main addiction is still in there, unaddressed, unacknowledged. And as long as that's unaddressed, unacknowledged, it's untreated. And thus, again, if you're not if you're not addressing anything, if you're not addressing everything, you're kind of not really addressing anything, in an ultimate, long-term, really effective sense. One other variation could be. Not, uh, not specifically like I'm, I'm addicted to sex as much as just I'm addicted to chaos and drama. And again, we referenced last lecture um, where fear becomes normalized or because you grew up in fear or grew up in chaos or grew up in these really intense scenarios. Uh, now, in peacetime, in stability and sobriety, you feel like something's missing. Um, you know, logically, you know you're good, you know you're stable, but internally, sublogically, in the body, you kind of feel like your life is incomplete. And so you'll tend to gravitate toward creating more chaos, creating more drama. And maybe that's going to be through drugs and alcohol, maybe through relationships, maybe through other just impulsive choices. Um, but, but in there, you'd want to say, okay, so you have a chaos and drama addiction. How do we, how do we, address, how do we address that? Common interactions to watch for, food and sex, definitely. Alcohol, cocaine and sex, porn and weed, meth and sex, like we talked about, cigarettes and everything, uh, alcohol, caffeine and nicotine, you know, those are, um, th those all go together. Um, probably like weed and screens in general. Um, I don't know, the one that I do, it's like, you know, shows and ice cream and some wine uh, late at night. Um, that's that's kind of my go-to, um, uh, et cetera. You know, we're, you know, obsessively working and exercising, that can be a common acting in one. You know, working in spiritual practice, you know, that, 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 could, be, that could be one too. So there's, there, there's, some, there's some interactions that, that, that happen a lot that they can watch for. Uh, and then there's going to be other individual ones as well. So again, touching on these questions, uh, what happens if you have more than one addiction, which I'm going to say is going to be most of the time. 
And again, you have the option, do you treat one at a time? Do you do them all at once? It's gonna be most effective to treat them all at once. That's also gonna be the hardest. So you have to gauge who's your person, what are the available resources. For some people, if you say you have to quit everything at once, that's gonna be crushing and discouraging and you shouldn't do that. Other people, they're gonna say, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm ready. Give me instructions, give me work to do, I can do it. And you're gonna to, to want to push these people a little bit more. And other people that, you know, I mean, there's some people that are, they're so deep into it that they're probably never gonna get all the way out of it, but they need something to be working at and, and you can help them to at least bring the overall levels down. You know, then there are some people who they, they can, they, they're able to get down to, okay, I've only got like one, one foothold of addiction left and I've got like kind of under control. Um, you know, and, and I worked with one, with one fellow who, you know, he was down to like, he'd use meth once a month. Um, and you know, maybe, maybe a little bit of alcohol here and there, but you know, that was a cycle, you know, he'd, he'd use, he'd use his meth once a month. Didn't really like that he did it and kind of wanted to stop. And that was what we talked about a lot, but, but there was a sense where like his only consequences at that point were like internal, like there's like the shame that went with it. And, and there's, there's one sense where like, I mean, if that's kind of where your addiction's gotten to it, it you can kind of sustain that a little bit. It's not good, it's not healthy, and it's still the active cycle, but you, you can sometimes get your cycle down to a rhythm like that before making the final leap to whatever uh, sobriety is possible after that. Granted, this other fellow also like had a lot of trauma and had no friends, no community, so I mean, that was also a big factor too. You know, if he would have, if he'd have had access to, to a community or some friends or been able to do some, some deeper trauma work, probably he could have broken out of the cycle altogether. That's a, that's a different story. Um, do you go for abstinence or a more harm reduction approach? Again, abstinence has value in that sometimes your body just needs a break and you need to like, you know, purge yourself there. Or you could say like your brain needs a reset. Sustaining long-term abstinence is not realistic for everyone. And it's not what everyone wants either. So that's where you factor in more of a harm reduction approach. You say, okay, what are you able to stop? What are you able to lesson? What are you open to quitting or lessening? Uh, how do we help you do that? Uh, and then whatever you do say, I'm going to keep this in my life for whatever reason, how do we help you still live a relatively healthy life around that? Um, and you know, treatment has to be able to be flexible and individual around that. The most ideal recommendation is to quit all of the addictions where possible. That's not always possible. So we don't judge people, but we help them do what they can. Substances are generally gonna be the easiest to quit because total renunciation is actually possible. You don't actually need any of these substances to live. Uh, process addictions such as sex and food are gonna always be harder because uh, total renunciation is usually not possible. Like you can't renounce, well, you, you could renounce food for, for the rest of your life and it'll be a very short life. You know, there, there's some people that opt to, to renounce, you know, all sexual activity for, for the rest of their life also. Uh, that, that's a very specific calling and I would say, should only be done within a very particular like spiritual practice with a lot of support uh, specifically around that. Otherwise, it's yeah, it's a not something most people are, are open to, and also it's like not maybe not something everybody is built to do either. So, you know, you got to be careful there. But I, but either way, getting like processes like 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 having sex and eating those are harder to do because they're, they're in you and you have to do them. You have to forge a new relationship with them. Uh, quitting the substances and the processes is gonna bring up the, the attachment issues, and that's gonna be repairing relationships, learning how to do that well. 
And again, plunging into the attachment issues is going to reveal the, uh, the, the layer of dysfunctional feelings that's typically rooted in a grievance story. Um, and um, you know, Patrick Carnes will say dismantling the grievance story is a core process to recovery. Without emotional consciousness, we can never reclaim the knowledge of who we are. Uh, a lot of this comes down to uh, are you able to express feelings? Are you able to have feelings? Are you able to share those feelings with another person without becoming alarmed by yours or theirs? You know, if you can do that, there's a good chance you can maintain sobriety. Um, if you're, you're not able to address the feelings, then you're not able to address the conflicts. You're not able to really pursue intimacy. You're not able to uh, develop a secure attachment. And so you're going to tend to again, cope by bonding to something that makes you feel less than you're feeling now. And that's where the acting out comes from. And here's our theme for this one. It's, uh, it's the causes and not just the behaviors that must be treated. What is the thing that drives the cycle? That's what needs to be treated. Other solutions like we've been talking about a whole lot. People in addictions, they need better bonds, more secure attachment figures, more intimate relationships, a, a greater number of more intimate relationships. Uh, and ultimately, too, I mean, people need better lives. Um, people tend to build their lives and organize their lives around their acting out, acting in cycles. And there's kind of a purposeful component to that. There's a, there's a fine line between addiction and obsession and focused passion. They use very similar brain mechanisms. Um, and, and so you can look at, like, the artist who's in flow creating a masterpiece. And they're, they're, they've got a laser focus. They're, they're doing this thing. They're not thinking about anything else. They're pursuing mastery of that thing at all costs. And we might say, hey, yeah, they're passionate about their work. They're in their flow. They're, they're accomplishing something really good. In kind of a similar way that, you know, like, like, the, like the drug dealer or the drug user, when they're, when they're hustling, they're kind of in that same mode of like, I know what I'm after and I'm going to get it no matter what it takes. And I'm persistent and I'm hardworking and I, and I achieve my goal. There, there's some similar mechanisms there. And so the idea is to turn that mechanism towards something that's going to build you a better life, toward your values, toward your... Uh, toward your core relationships, toward your vision, your purpose, you know, building your legacy. Uh, so, and that, again, that, that takes a lot of work. It takes a lot of time. It takes community. That's the direction that recovery ought to go. That concludes our lectures on addiction interaction. From the uh, wonderful, fabulous studio audience, any quick uh, thoughts or questions or comments around this? I, I had one brief thought. Uh, I was thinking of uh, the, the church father as St. John Climacus, St. John of the Ladder, when you, you were talking about, you know, not judging and how uh, you approach a client, whatever state they're in, um, focusing more on what they need. He, he points to the metaphor of medicine when guiding people um, in, any, in pretty much any way. And one of the things he says is uh, you can't, you can't be a surgeon if you get disgusted at the surgery you're having to do. If you're grossed out by it, you're, you're not actually able to help anyone. So being someone who's able to approach brokenness of some kind and not be judgmental or disgusted is absolutely fundamental to healing. So, yeah, that seems a very important part of, of all of this. Yeah, I appreciate that. That the reference to to Saint John Climacus, uh, you know, author of the the latter, because um, yeah, you're, it's it's very true. Uh, what we're working with is um, when we're working with counseling and treatment, it is like administering medicine, medicine for for the soul, for the body, for the minds, for the emotions, 
And part of that too is where there needs to be a level of skill and there needs to be kind of a level of experience with, with your own self, your own recovery process, uh, the recovery processes of others to, to be able to, to look at a person's specific situation and say, hmm, you need a little bit more of this. You need a stronger medicine. Mm, no, but you need a little bit less and a little bit more gentle medicine. Uh, there needs to be able to be that, that fine-tuned, very personal guidance there. Uh, and you're right. Uh, I mean, I love that quote. Like, you know, you can't, you know, the surgeon cannot be disgusted by the surgery that, you know, she is about to to perform. Uh, you know, one of the, some someone else, one of my other teachers has said, one of the most important qualifications for being an addictions counselor is the capacity to suspend judgment. Because let's be real, you hear some shit. You hear some deep shit when you're doing this work because people do awful things and you have to be able to sit with them in that and be that secure welcoming attachment figure never condoning the things but also not being alarmed or disgusted by the person but being able to say okay that that's your stuff we'll we'll sit with that we'll work through it that needs that absolutely needs to happen well thank you again for being here And thank you, listener, and um, we will continue with this on next time. We love your feedback and invite you to share your thoughts about this conversation. Also, we'd appreciate your review and five-star rating on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Spotify. Share your thoughts through email at smartcouncilpodcast at gmail.com. You can also find us at facebook.com slash smartcouncilpodcast. Please consider supporting this podcast with a financial donation through patreon.com slash smartcouncil. Our theme music is by Trent Price. Our logo design is by Thomas Moore. Thanks again for listening, and let's keep the conversation going. Music